Welcome to the Discovering Our Scars podcast, where we share our personal experiences so we can learn from each other. Our mission is to talk about things you might relate to, but that you don't hear being discussed in other places. Our hope is that you're encouraged to have honest conversations with people in your own life. I'm Steph. And I'm Beth. On today's show, we're going to have an honest conversation titled, Stop Wasting Your Emotions on These People with Dr. Jill. All right, I'm excited, Beth, because today we have Dr. Jill Rickey, and she is my psychologist. Jill, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. This is, you've been on our list since the very beginning, since we started the podcast. I had, and I asked you early on, you're like, yeah, of course. And it's taking me this much time to actually put this together. But um, I feel like we have a great topic today. We started working together in 06. I forgot this, but you had to remind me. So my dad is a psychologist and I guess I had asked him who would be good to go to for counseling and he recommended you. Is that how it happened? Yes, it is. He actually called me and asked me if I would treat his daughter. Oh, oh wow. So, wow. It's all connected. Yeah. I, I actually never knew that story. Um, so that's, yeah. So you've been my psychologist for that amount of time. Uh, I still am coming about once a month. So that's, that's a lot of years. I'm curious though, is that like typical for someone to be coming to therapy for that long with the same person or like how long do you typically see a, a client? Well, it depends on really what they come to counseling for. Okay. I mean, there's some issues that, you know, are very brief. And then there's some issues that take a long time, you know, especially if you're in a relationship, a toxic relationship or some form of trauma that usually takes, you know, months, sometimes years. And then sometimes just working with somebody, other issues just as you're growing up. I mean, because I started working with you when you were in high school. Mm -hmm. So we had high school, college, then post-college. So mm -hmm. different stressors occur in our lives. And so because you were in town, it was easy for you to come back and see me when you needed me. Yeah. So it's not like I've seen you weekly yeah. for 16 years. Yeah. There were gaps. Yes. <laughs> I lived in a whole nother city for a while. Yeah. Right. That is true. I mean, because that would be unusual, 16 years straight with no stops to yes, see someone weekly. That, that would be pretty unusual. But yeah. I do have patients that I've been seeing like throughout their life. Like I used to work with kids and so people that were kids and then they went away to college and then maybe they came back after college and, you know, just see them on an as needed basis when they'd have an issue that would come up. I don't know how you keep it straight. Like one of the, so for me, whenever I have had to start with a new counselor, it's, I hate the starting part of it because there's so much stuff that I feel like they don't know, but that I want them to know, but I don't, then I don't know how everyone keeps it straight. So if someone comes to you and then they take a five-year break and then they call you cause they need you, you, you must keep notes or something. I mean, how do you remember their backstories? Well, we do keep files, but we, we only have to keep them for like eight years. Mm -hmm. But, um, fortunately I have a good memory mm -hmm. and I can look at a file that I have and it comes back to me. And there's a lot of people that I just remember for different reasons. Yeah. yeah. I would think that would be a really essential skill. So I think back 16 years ago, I think I started coming to you for, um, I believe I had just finally admitted that I was dealing with self-injury to my mom. And I think that's when she was like, okay, we're going to get you help right away. And then my dad called you and, you know, asked me, asked um, for you to treat me. Uh, so I'm curious, though, like that's what brought me to you. What typically brings somebody um, to seek out your services? Well, I work with a lot of victims of violent crime, so I can get referrals from victim advocates, from law enforcement agencies. But I'd say the majority of my new clients or new patients are from referrals from somebody that they knew that they had seen me. And so it was a recommendation. 
I'd say the majority of my clients have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I have that too. Wow. We didn't even learn that till years later, but she knew, she knew she was going to need the, I was going to need this. And it was really helpful to you when there was a, when there was a name for it. You're like, Oh, okay. I got this. Yeah. Yes, for sure. I, this is a, a, a side trail, but are there people who are victims of violent crime who don't need counseling? They don't think they need counseling. Mm-hmm. And so what can happen is, I mean, because I also work with a lot of veterans too, mm-hmm. PTSD, the military folks. So um, a lot of people are embarrassed to come because of maybe what happened to them. And so it might take them years. Like a lot of sexual assault survivors, it might be years before they come to seek therapy. Um, it really depends on their support group and if they are even aware of counseling because even though people talk about it, it's still considered kind of hush hush that mm-hmm. it's like, Oh really? You see a psychologist. What's wrong with you? Right. There's still, even though they're trying to make it not a stigma, it really still is a stigma. And especially for the military males in the military have a very difficult time coming, but they tend to come when their um, PTSD is so bad. They're having nightmares and can't sleep and how often do you typically see those clients? Like the, the ones that you said were that like military clients, how often or like for how long? Yeah. Like, do they come in for like once and then they never come back or is there any like typical time? No, they'll come weekly for, you know, it can be a year. It can be two years. I usually start out weekly, then go every other week and then monthly and then as needed. Mm -hmm. Do people, do the trauma that people share ever affect you? I think I've pretty much learned how to manage it over the years, which is why I do it through exercise. Like I work out or run or ride my mountain bike and do things like that to let it out. And that's also when I do a lot of my thinking and processing of maybe treatment planning. And so a lot of that is when I'm exercising. So something that we talk about on this podcast a lot is, um, you know, I think everybody could benefit from therapy. That's just, you know, my personal opinion. And obviously I'm in therapy Um, and I feel like if I asked you this question, it seems pretty obvious that you would say, yes, everyone would like, should, uh, would benefit from therapy, but for real, do you think everyone would benefit from therapy? Well, the only people that benefit from therapy are people that actually acknowledge that they have an issue and they want to get better. Mm. When somebody tells them to come, like, um, I rarely work with teenagers anymore because it's like their parents make them come. Mm. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of their time. Um, Oftentimes, there are certain types of individuals that they don't think anything's wrong with them. Mm. Or they'll just go to therapy just to have somebody listen to them. Or they'll go and plead their case against something that might not really be the truth and they've got the therapist on their side and that's kind of not really the way that I want to be used as a as a ther- as a psychologist I want to be there to help somebody who wants to get help and actually makes change so if I'm working with a person so I've used to work a lot with eating disorders when I work with a person who I don't feel is working and making any progress I confront them on that and say you know I need for you to really want to make some changes because this isn't working. So I try to make them accountable for, for themselves. So I have been seeing you, you know, for 16 years, we've had many conversations cause you know, there's just been some stuff, some stuff going on in my life, but there are, um, there's been times where there's been people that have come in my life and you've kind of explained to me that these are people that aren't going to change and that I have to learn how to deal with these people in my life. And that's kind of what we want to talk about is who are these people? How can I identify them? 
Um, so that's what I'm asking. What I want to kind of ask you: what What are these types of personalities that we we want to define? That's a very good question. Um, typically, the people that do not change, they rarely come into treatment because they don't think anything is wrong with them. So they tend to um, blame other people for their problems. It's somebody else's fault. Um, these people will have, they might have narcissistic traits or psychopathic traits. And what I mean by these, these are traits that um, where they blame others for their problems. They never take responsibility for things. They have no remorse. They have a callous lack of empathy. Uh, they're manipulative and charming, and they are abusive to others, and they typically are pathological liars. So these are just some of the psychological characteristics of these folks, but because they're like that, they don't think anything is wrong with them, and so they don't um, pretty much change. But when I was talking about these traits that I said they're typical of a narcissist or a psychopath, and um, a lot of people tend to use the word sociopath, mm-hmm. and that is used probably more often erroneously because there's no valid measure of sociopathy where there actually is for psychopathy. It's called the psychopathy checklist revised where you can actually get a number, you check off, you know, traits, behaviors, if they exist, then they would be characterized as this person has psychopathic traits where sociopathy is mainly looking at behaviors, antisocial behaviors, behaviors like criminal um, criminal behaviors, things that are against the law, mm. where I look at a, a really quick and easy definition of a psychopath would be an aggressive narcissist that engages in chronic antisocial behavior. So you're getting a combination of the personality traits, the callous lack of empathy, the manipulation, the charm, the lies, the deceit, along with the behaviors that are against society, that are against the law, that are just, you know, that are just wrong has everybody encountered someone like this? Like, do you think we've all encountered these people and we don't really know how to identify them or we know that we don't feel good around them and they make us feel like we're a problem, but we don't really like, how do, how do we know who these people are? Well, they're not easy to spot unless you've been involved in a relationship or have a family member or a friend or a coworker that has these traits, then you will be able to spot them. Or if you're researching it, But I need to tell you, we can all be fooled by a psychopath and a narcissist because they are so good at what they're doing because they've spent their whole lives perfecting it. Yeah, Um, I was going to say, I feel like I feel like narcissism has been sort of more more of a buzzword in the last several years. And it's because we have been exposed to narcissists who gain big followings, you mm -hmm. know, that they, they have these. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not. Although we're saying it's antisocial, that doesn't mean that they're not liked. <laughs> yeah, it's almost the opposite of antisocial. They're they're very social. They're very right. like charismatic. Right. So when I use the word antisocial, I don't mean it as socialization. I mean it as things that are against the law, things that mm-hmm. are crime. So they're antisocial. They're not acceptable ways to act in society. Yeah. That's really against our I social covenant. That. Yes, yeah, against yeah. our social mores and yeah. Like what are some like hallmark signs of a narcissist? Well, some of them, like I said, a callous lack of empathy, um, very manipulative, charming. Um, they deny responsibility. They blame other people for their problems. They have a heightened sense of idealize of themselves. They think mm. they're more important than they are. Um, 
they they typically have difficult time with relationships. They have to, it's a power differential. They always have to be in control and the person a powerful person. But what's interesting about narcissists and psychopaths is you can be aggressive an aggressive narcissist or you can be a passive aggressive narcissist, meaning they might not be physically violent or a passive aggressive psychopath where these individuals typically p- play the victim role. Mm-hmm. Like it's always somebody else's fault. Mm-hmm. So they get people to feel sorry for them. Mm-hmm. And they also, if you're in a relationship with them, they will isolate you from other people. So you don't have anybody else, but them. So their needs are what totally matter. So you end up giving up your needs to make, to take care of their needs because that's just what, after a while you've been in a relationship, once that bond has been established, then it's like we call it the psychopathic bond or the narcissistic bond where it doesn't happen immediately. It takes a while for the the narcissist or the psychopath will read their victim pretty much and kind of mirror what they do and what they say. So then the other person automatically thinks, wow, I found my soulmate or I found um, this person that really gets me when actually what they were doing was just manipulating. What makes a person like that? Like what, what makes someone become a narcissist or a psychopath? Well, I mean, there's lots of research on that. And in my experience, I'm going to just look at what I've seen historic, what I've seen in my practice is I see a genetic component. Interesting. It seems like it's in each generation or it might skip a generation, but like I will work with patients who have that are getting a divorce from their narcissistic spouse and then their children as they age all of a sudden the child starts developing the same behaviors as as the parent that's the narcissist. So if we have uh if you know if somebody has a narcissistic parent do they need to be worried that they're going to become a narcissist? No and that is usually the biggest fear and I typically say if you're in my office you're not a narcissist. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so, right. right. If you're in my office you're, getting help because yeah. you actually feel empathy and yeah. you feel remorse where a narcissist doesn't. They say and they do things and then later they're like, well, what's the big deal? They were just words. You know, I didn't really mean it. Mm-hmm. So you said that these kind of people don't come to your office because they don't think they're a problem. So how do you diagnose a narcissist or, or a sociopath? Like how do how do we diagnose them if they never come in for treatment because they don't have a problem, air quotes? Well, you can diagnose them. Like I said, you've got the, the psychopathy checklist revised. You've got the narcissistic personality disorder criteria. But how do in you the, ask them the questions? Or you're just like observing them? It's going to be from information that you get. Okay. Like say police records, um, divorce decree, d- just different things. But oftentimes they will come in. They will come in oh, okay. like a joint, like, couples counseling mm. and you know it's I can it's sometimes it's pretty obvious yeah you can tell yeah wow so do you think people are born narcissists or it develops well like I said I think it's genetic so okay. I think that they have a predisposition mm-hmm. and so when I work with my patients that divorced a narcissistic spouse and I tell them once if they start seeing their child mm. developing some behaviors that are really that are inappropriate, and I just try to help them get a handle on it and try to teach them empathy, mm. because empathy is when you feel bad. Mm-hmm. You know, you feel bad if somebody's sad. Yeah. Where remorse is, you feel bad for something that you said. Where these people that have a callous lack of empathy and they have no remorse. 
they're like, oh, well, just get over it. What's the big deal? You're too sensitive. Yes. Yeah. So when I think of, of someone being a psychopath, to me, that sounds like a serial killer, right? But, yes. but maybe it's not just that. No, that's, that is a misconception. And that I think right there is why people use the word sociopath instead of psychopath. Because mm. I think if you were to ask anybody or a lot of people, they would give, give a definition of, oh, a psychopath is a serial killer. Well, that's not necessarily true. There are some serial killers that are psychopaths, but all serial killers are not psychopaths, just like all psychopaths are not serial killers. If that makes sense. That does make sense. I guess it, I, I, there's something also something about the, that, um, you know, that, that word psycho. I don't know, yeah. like somehow I'm relating that, I think, which is probably completely cultural and nothing to do with your, you know, your, your work in your field, but. Well, it, the word psychopath sounds worse than sociopath. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Sociopath almost sounds like benign. Oh, right. they're a sociopath. Well, and psychopath looks very similar to psychologist. It oh. starts with the same letters, which is kind of interesting <laughs> to okay. me. I, the reason I can't get them straight is because of my dyslexia. That's what I know that the sociopath is wrong, but like, I can't, I don't even know I'm saying it wrong, but I know what you mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I know that I'm wrong, but I can't hear myself saying it. Are all sociopaths narcissists? Wait, did I just say it wrong again? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So yes, are all psychopaths narcissists? Yes. Are all psychopaths narcissists? So back to that definition, you've got a psychopath is an aggressive narcissist that engages in chronic antisocial behavior. Okay, so yes. So if we look at a continuum, you've got narcissistic traits, full-blown narcissism, psychopathic traits, full-blown psychopathy. Okay. So so the, the serial killers who are not psychopaths, what okay. are they? Um, of... Uh, some that, that I've researched, uh, a guy named Danny Rowling, he was the person that killed all the, the Gainesville murders about, gosh, in the 80s, I think. Mm. He was a borderline personality disorder. He was diagnosed with that. And so was Eileen Wernos, who was the female serial killer around Daytona that, um, that would hitchhike and killed men. She was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. So what is that? What is borderline personality disorder? I mean, are, is it being a psychopath or being a narcissist? Is that not a personality disorder? They are. They are. Okay. I mean, you can have more than one personality disorder. Okay. But a borderline personality disorder is a person that is, their reality is distorted. They typically have um, attachment issues. They, um, they've had oftentimes some trauma, sexual trauma in their life. And they're just very manipulative, uh, very seductive. Just they cause chaos wherever they go. So borderline personality disorder is different than bipolar. Yes. Those are two separate things. Oftentimes a a borderline personality disorder has a history of suicidal attempts, um, non-suicidal self-injury. Because that's what you told me I wasn't a... Borderline. Yeah, I wasn't borderline. Right, because oftentimes as soon as... Um, a mental health professional hears the word cutting, yeah. which is you know now considered non-suicidal self-injury, the first thing they go to is it's a borderline personality disorder. Yeah. And you told me that I don't have that because you had worked with me long enough to know. Yes, absolutely. Why, why, is that, why is that the connection though? But why, so why would cutting indicate a borderline personality dis- disorder? Is it because of the history of trauma that The histrionic behaviors, the wanting attention. Okay. Yeah, which is not at all what Steph was doing. 
No. No. Yeah. Well, and that's why I don't like to use the word cutting because it cutting can be like that. I usually use that word for people that are trying to use it for attention. Mm-hmm. Like mine was never for attention. It was right. always, you know, you were hiding it. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't for other people to know. Yeah. What? So what about gaslighting? I feel like that's another term that I've, that I've been hearing more about. What is gaslighting and is that related in some way to narcissism? Oh, definitely. Gaslighting is a form of abuse that the narcissist and psychopath, that's their favorite thing. Um, a definition of that is gaslighting is a form of emotional abuse that's seen in abusive relationships. And it's the act of manipulating a person by forcing them to question their thoughts, memories, and the events occurring around them. So another way to look at it, it's like a colloquialism for a specific type of manipulation where the manipulator is successful in having the target question their own reality, memory, or perception of the world. Mm. And that is from Wikipedia, by the way. Wow. <laughs> but, but, it is, but what happens, typically an example of it, is they say what they need to say at the moment to get mm-hmm. what they want, and then when you question them about it later, they deny ever saying it, they turn around, they say, I never said that, and then they call you crazy. Mm-hmm. Even despite evidence that, that shows that, oh, Oops, yes, you did say this. They don't ever say, oh, I'm sorry. Instead, they say, see how crazy you are. Yeah. So, And after a while, you hear that. You begin mm-hmm. to believe it. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, I will get patients to come to me because they think they're going crazy. Yeah. Um, and another form of manipulation with the gaslighting is they will, because they say stuff all the time to get what they want, and then because there's no truth to it, they don't remember it. Mm-hmm. And so they de- do appear very believable. Then they'll say, well, you know you have a bad memory. Mm-hmm. So they say, well, you know you have a bad memory. You hear that over and over, and you start thinking, well, I guess I have a bad memory. And so then they start believing it. And so that's the form of manipulation. It's so devastating. Can other people gaslight, or is it only narcissists and psychopaths? psychopaths? Well, that's just one of their favorite ways of Okay, but other people could, like, I could gaslight somebody? You wouldn't be able to because you're not able okay. to manipulate them. That oh, okay. Well. You okay. wouldn't be able to do it without laughing. Okay. Like a parent that's a narcissist, the, the gaslighting that they will do to their child will be, say the child is an adult and the adult will say to their mom or dad, remember when we did this? Remember this time we were stuck in the car for 10 hours and you didn't give us lunch or something? That's when they'll say, that didn't happen. You're making that up. So it's like mm-hmm. they use gaslighting, gaslighting to shame the person into believing that whatever their memories are, they're wrong, that that never happened. They, the narcissist will never admit, yes, I was a bad parent. Mm-hmm. They will never admit that because they don't think they were. Yeah. No, I, memory is just such a funny thing altogether. Oh, you yeah. know, I'm, when I think about just in my own nuclear family, you know, my family of origin, like the the memories vary widely when you talk about certain events. And it's like, I have no idea what really happened because, you know, I'm, I'm the youngest by a lot of years and everybody else's memories are very different. And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I won't hold up on a court of law. Right. <laughs> Although they take it like it does. Right. Well, but a memory is also going to be based on what you were paying attention to at the time. So if you were only paying attention to the birthday cake that you had on your birthday, and meanwhile, mom and dad or everybody else was fighting, you didn't pay attention to that. So you don't have a memory of that. So the things that get stored in your memory are what you are paying attention to. Do you think pictures and video help or hurt our memory? Well, what happens with a picture and a video is once you see it, you think it's a memory. Mm -hmm. So you can't discern the difference Mm -hmm. between do I remember this because it was real or do I remember it 
um, because it was shown to me. So and how, there is yeah. research on that. Actually, I did my master's thesis on that, oh. looking at different learning and memory of incidental and intentional learning and your for, for eyewitness reports. For instance, if somebody gives a, an account of an accident and they, they saw it, but then they read a newspaper article about it and the article said the car was green, they'll remember the car was green, but if they didn't read the article and they were asked what color was the car, they might say, I don't know. Mm because they weren't really paying attention to it. So you, it's difficult to separate. So in this day and age of social media, none of our, we, none of our memories can be trusted because there's so much video and pictures of everything. It's like, I don't that's know. Kind of scary. That's wow. So I know I have had some, um, I've worked with some people that, um, you know, I'm never going to change. I've had some people in my life like this. Um, and I know I have spent, I remember working with some people like this and I would spend like just hours trying to figure out how, what did I do wrong? How do I work with them? Like, why are, why is this still a problem? Like, why is this the person I have all these issues with, but I don't have these issues with anybody else. When I identify these people in my life, how do I stop wasting my emotions on these people? And how do I deal with these people if they have to be in my life? That's a really good question. And I think most of us believe that um, like our emotions are wasted on people because we believe that everybody's good mm -hmm. and everybody has good mm -hmm. intentions. And if say they say something mean or something we perceive to be mean, we give them a pass. Oh, they're having a bad day. They're having a bad day. And so the difficult thing is trusting your judgment and to not give them a pass and, you know, to remember, hmm, they said that that wasn't very nice and just kind of file it away and just try to, you know, pay attention to how they behave and what they do in the future, because everybody knows how they're supposed to act. I mean, mm. everybody knows how to act. So you can fake nice all day long because you know what you have to say. You know what you're supposed to do, but you can't fake cruel and cruel or mean. That is who they really are. And I kind of refer to that as the narcissist and psychopath has a mask of sanity and when they're faking nice, their mask of sanity is on and they're pretending. And then when they don't get their way or something happens and, and their mask comes off and they're mean as a snake and you're thinking, where did this come from? And then they catch themselves often and they're like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And then you give them a pass. And what can happen is, especially if it's the beginning of the psychopathic or narcissistic bond, you want to trust them. So you give them a pass, you give them a pass, and then... As time goes on, that person that you liked in the beginning that was really nice, it was faking nice, you keep waiting for that person to come back mm. and they don't come back because that person never existed. Mm. So the real person is who you are with now that has the cruel side. And so you just kind of learn, because you already have bonded with them, you don't leave the relationship. You mm. kind of stay in it because you keep hoping that they'll change, they'll change, and then there'll be glimpses of they'll be nice, but then as time goes on, the cruelty. I can see that. Like you make excuses. Oh, well, they had a bad yeah. day or, oh, they're not feeling good or, oh, they're, you know, yes. and you think, oh yeah, the nice, the nice version of this person will come back into my life. That makes, cause you, cause you want to assign positive intent. You want to, we want to believe that people are good. So yeah, right. that's interesting. Be well, because we think, because we don't lie and we don't say bad things about other people. Why would they? Yeah. So that is the hardest thing for when I'm working with a person who's getting out of a relationship with a psychopath or narcissist is how could I have been fooled? Mm -hmm. How could this have happened to me? 
And that's when I say we can all be fooled by them. And it's like the depth of cruelty of things that they say is just, it's very difficult for people to believe, especially if they've been married to that person for 10, 15, 20 years. And are these people um, in, in places of power? Oftentimes. And like these are people like in our, in our government that we vote into office? Yes. I mean, we might not have voted for them. You but, and me, but... But other people do, because they're fascinated by the charm, by the, you know, just being able to, you know, they're Tell you what smooth. you want to hear. They're smooth. Mm-hmm. They say what you want to hear, and then, you know, oftentimes, you know, because, say if it's somebody in Congress or something, they can't, they can't do what they said they would do, because what, for whatever reason, maybe there's no money or something, you know, that they promised to do, a campaign promise might fall through. So something you've told me um, when dealing with like narcissists specifically is, um, you know, like, how do I protect me? And something that you've really has helped is by you saying like, they're never going to change. This is who they are. And you have to learn how to deal with them in your life if they're going to continue to stay in your life. And that has been really helpful for me to realize that like, okay, I know that's hard to come from the place of like, someone can't change, but that's was really helpful for for me to realize, okay, they're not going to change. So when I'm going to be around this person, I prepare myself. I kind of plan what situation I'll be with them in with them and how I'll be able to handle that. And, you know, there are certain things where I know I'm not going to continue. I'm not going to respond to that conversation because I know it's never going to go anywhere because I know where it's going to end. I know what this person's whole, you know, end game is. So, um, I know that's been really helpful for me, although it's hard to realize that someone isn't going to change. You're right. That is hard. But once you figure out, so when I think, when I, I tell people to research narcissistic personality disorder, psychopathic personality, especially, especially if you think a member in your family might have it or displays traits of that. And so then once you get all your research in line, then you can figure out, okay, um, how much do I want them in my life? And, you know, especially when it comes to family members, it's like, we don't choose our family. We are born into our family and we tend to love our family members because they're family, but nobody, I try to give my patients permission that you can love, love your family, but you don't have to like them. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like them, that's okay. Because like I said, you choose your, you choose your partner, you choose your friends. And that way you can determine how much time you actually want to spend with them. And, you know, oftentimes when people, when young folks get married and they might have a, a narcissist for a parent, you know, I encourage them when you go visit your parents at Christmas, because typically they have to visit the parents, a narcissist mm. never comes. Mm. And so I say, just go rent a hotel room. Do not stay in their house. And they're like, but they'll be mad at me. And I'm like, so what? They're going to mm. be mad at you anyway. Mm. But you've got it. So it's a way of you have to learn to establish boundaries. Because if it's a parent, they've had so much power over you your whole life, it's very difficult to stand up to them. So would, if you start to identify these traits of someone in, in your life, do you think that's a good reason to start going to therapy? Or would be that, would that, you know, would someone start, you know, researching online? Like, what would be the first step if you start to realize, wait, I think my mom might be a narcissist? Well, yeah, I, I say definitely research it. There's a book that I recommend a lot. It's called Will I Ever Be Good Enough by Dr. McBride. It's written by a psychologist whose mother was a narcissist. And she pretty much kind of directed it toward women 
of a with a narcissistic mother, but I've used it with men who or women who have narcissistic dads, um, men who have narcissistic mothers. So it's not just for women, women with the narcissistic mom. But what is interesting is I will have people who have a narcissistic parent, once they've started having children, they come to my office and they're petrified that they are going to become like their parent. Mm. And, you know, and like I said before, earlier in the, in the show is that if you're in my office, you're not a narcissist. Yeah. So, but, mm. but they're, they are, they are paranoid and petrified that they are going to be a bad parent. Have you ever had a narcissist come to you willingly for treatment? Um, no. Well, yeah. one time a, a girl brought her boyfriend that was a narcissist and he, he walks in the office and he says to me, you will not take notes. You will, I will pay by cash. You will not make a record of mm. this. This is blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, see the door. This never happened. You need to leave. Oh my goodness. <laughs> right. So okay. no, I mean, yeah. if somebody does come in, I mean, that's a narcissist. They're usually coming because somebody wants yeah. them to come. So it's never. And so it's choice. fake. Yeah. And I mm. can pretty much figure it out. If you ask a narcissist, if they're a narcissist, what will they say? They'll laugh at you. Mm-hmm. They'll laugh at you and say, you're the narcissist. So, so I tell mm. people when they figure out somebody in their family might be a narcissist, I say, you can figure that out. You don't need to talk about it to them because they will not admit it. They will, they'll call you crazy and call you stupid. And so you just need to keep that to yourself and just learn how to manage it on your own. And even if you think you have a parent that's a narcissist, and if you try to share this with your siblings, they're not going to want to believe it. They, they will call you crazy. And so you just need to just realize that, okay, you figured it out. So the, the best thing is you will no longer get hurt. Yeah. Because with the narcissistic parent or person in your life, you keep trying and trying and trying, and it's never good enough. So I'm curious for you, Beth, as we're talking about, you know, narcissists are never going to change. Like, and I've, I've told I've talked to you about that before. And you've kind of, be, you are a pastor, and right. you, your core belief, one of the beliefs I feel like is people can change. Yes. And so how does, how do you feel when we're talking about, you know, a narcissist is not going to change? Well, I absolutely believe everything that Dr. Jill is saying, because she's researched this and, and it is her, you know, it is the work of her life. So I believe her. I think on the pastoral level, well, let me just say too, like, I would never try to counsel somebody. I know that's not in my wheelhouse. I know that's not, you know, um, there are a lot of pastors who do that. I don't think it's a good idea. Um, but I would say that as a pastor, as a matter of, of spirituality or a matter of religion, that there is always the possibility for redemption. So Even I have to hold narcissist? on. So I have to hold on to hope that somehow, some way by some miracle, just like stage four cancer is incurable, but sometimes it happens, right? That somehow a narcissist could come to terms with who they really are and try to make amends. But I, but I have no idea if that ever really happens. I just hold, I hold on to the hope that it could. And also I don't have any narcissists in my life. So it's easy for me to say that, right? I mean, I don't have anybody that I'm like, Right. Oh yeah. If you don't think you have any narcissists in your life, does that mean you're the narcissist? Hmm. No, if you think you're, yeah, if you question it, then you're not. (laughs) So Beth, I think I might be able to help you. I've worked with several people that were in the process of a divorce that the narcissists were very religious. Mm. They, they used religion to hide behind. And so they would go to try to do marriage counseling with their pastors. And on two occasions, they went many, many, many times. And the pastor finally said to the person I was working with, 
it's not, they're not going to change. It's, it's, you need to just, as a pastor, I'm not supposed to tell you this pretty much, right? but but they're (laughs) not going to change and you can stay with them and we'll be having this conversation in 10 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and people do use religion to manipulate and our sister, pastors use it. Our master manipulators. Pastors. That aren't, wait, 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 what are you saying? No, no, not like you, like, but yeah. There's so many people that are pastors, air quote pastors that have no training. They just right. started some Yahoo church. I mean, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. The, the fake stuff, not well, you. And one of the podcasts that I've done in the past, it's on the Aftermath website, is called Psychopathy in the Ministry. Mm. Oh, yeah. Because they gravitate to it. Because they it's do. really easy to fake being religious. And most yes. people who are religious want to believe that the person in the pulpit is the next best thing to God. So they're going to yes. believe them. Yes. And it is a it, it is a position that comes with a lot of um, inherent trust and power and authority. Yes. And so people who are, you know, so I mean, like in, in my tradition, in the Methodist church, like the first thing that they you have to do is you have to do a psychological exam. It's like the first thing you say, I think I want to be a pastor. And they're like, you're going to need to see a psychologist. So Dr. Jill, is there a connection between selfishness and a lack of self-awareness? Because I feel like with what you've been explaining to us about narcissists, like they are very selfish and they are they lack self-awareness. That's true. That's true. But there isn't necessarily a connection with selfishness and lack of self-awareness because we can all be selfish. That does not mean we're a narcissist or a psychopath. That's but, a relief. But with the but with the narcissist or psychopath, the world revolves around them. Yeah. So that's what they've been their whole lives. They they don't do things they don't want to do, and people are in their lives to make to take care of their needs. And so they don't see that anything they don't see anything selfish about it because that's how they've been their whole lives. And oftentimes, a parent has enabled that in a in a ruly teenager, you know, it's just easier to go along. It's just make it easier and just give him what he wants. So if somebody is looking for a psychologist or somebody to do therapy with in some way, do you have any tips for how somebody would find one um, and how they know what kind of treatment they're looking for? Yes, I would try to make sure that the person that they t- they talk to, like if they talk on the phone, ask their um, experience with working with uh, domestic violence victims, intimate partner victim, intimate partner violence. That's the new term for domestic violence, IPV. But because if they, because many narcissists are batterers, mm. and so there's inner inner you know intimate partner violence in a psychopath relationship or narcissist relationship. So if they have that experience, that means they're comfortable with it. They're going to believe what the person tells them because the hardest thing is some mental health professionals are really not trained to understand the depth of depravity of a narcissist and a psychopath. And so they don't really believe that a person could be capable of that. And what are your thoughts on, um, there's like, um, there's like a website called like better health or something, I think, and it's for like online therapy or therapy through like an app. What are your thoughts on things like that? I'd say that's unethical. Okay. So do you think it's important to find someone that you can talk face to face with? Yes. Because there's so much other stuff going on besides just words, especially if it's just through like an app where you're just typing. Mm-hmm. You know, even, you know, facial expressions. I've had to do some um, Zoom court experiences and it's just terrible. Mm-hmm. Like testifying, it's just not the same. Yeah. 
And what is cognitive behavioral therapy? Um, that is the form of, of therapy that I use where it's like you're trying to help people's thoughts, which is their cognitions and their behavior. So to change their thought processes, which help them change their behaviors. And is that the most typical type of service people are looking for when they go to see a psychologist? Well, it depends, but I would say that that's the most effective. It's, it works faster. You're helping people learn new behaviors to recognize their inappropriate or un, uh, cognitions that are, that are not helpful, like their thought process. So yeah. it's like mm-hmm. interrupting and catching their thought processes and changing them. I, I can't think of a person who wouldn't benefit from that. Mm-hmm. I mean, but they have to want to change and yeah. they have to be able to identify that, wow, I need help in this area. If someone came to you and they said, this is what I need work on, would you be able to say, it will take five sessions? Would you no. ever be able, yeah, you'll, no. you'd never know. Because people are complex. You know, I mean, there's right. always going to be more stuff. I mean, 16 years later, there's more stuff. <laughs> right? Layers right. and layers of stuff. I have this one patient I've been seeing off and on for many years. And she's like, when she first came, it was for like bulimia. And then later it was just other things. And she talks to her friend that comes to see me too. It's like, yeah, we're graduate students <laughs> in therapy. I really appreciate you being here. I mean, I, it's just a whole fascinating conversation to me. I feel like I haven't said much, but I've been really listening and absorbing it. Although it, I will say cognitive behavioral therapy sounds like such a complex word. It sounds complex, but it's very simple. Like it's like, I think maybe people are intimidated to start seeing a, a ther you know, start going to therapy maybe, or, um, you know, they think, I think I thought I was going to lay on a couch that did not happen, but you do have a couch, <laughs> but I do want to say like, basically on it's, TV, it's, there's always, a couch. I know people I know. are always laying down. I'm sitting on a couch though. <laughs> but I, what I wanted to say is like, it's just a conversation. That's what we're, that's what we do when I'm with you is we just, I talk and you listen and you share and you give me things to think about and to, you know, help me realize like I'm not the problem in some situations. And sometimes I am the problem in some situations, but that's really what it is. It's not something that's like overly complex. It's just, it's talking. And that's like the treatment for PTSD is talking. Right. And it's not a cure. Sometimes it's just coming in and talking about it and sharing with somebody that helps you process it in your own brain. Yeah. But also, but also what she's pointing to is that sometimes just, just the, just having the conversation with her because you are trusting her, like your own mind is coming up with, um, with the solution that you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Dr. Jill, thank you so much for being here. This has been awesome. I'm so glad we waited three years. I feel it's been three years. Uh, this is like worth the perfect, the perfect worth conversation. The <laughs> so where can people find you? Um, they could find me. I am a board member of a foundation, the Aftermath Foundation. So if they go, if they Google Aftermath Foundation, go on the website, and that's where some of the podcasts that I've done are on. They're under Aftermath Radio. You have to scroll down to it. But there's also resources on that, um, <clears throat> on the website of resources of different books to read, articles that would be very useful if you wanted to start researching about a narcissist or psychopath. Perfect. Well, we put links to all of that on our website and in the description. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank we, you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I feel like we're going to have you on 10 more times for 10 more topics. Yes. We'll see if she says yes. <laughs> okay. She said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
At the end of each episode, we end with questions for reflection. These are questions based on today's show that Beth will read and live a little pause between for you to answer, or you can find a PDF on our Buy Me a Coffee page. Number one, after hearing this conversation, do you think there are people in your life who you're wasting your emotions on? Number two, do you go to therapy? What made what motivates you to go or hold you back from seeking support? Number three, have you ever experienced gaslighting? And number four, what tips did you learn in this episode about identifying these people in your life? This has been the Discovering Our Scars podcast. Thank you for joining us. 